I hope you guys are well. <clears throat> I've been better. I got up this morning about 1.45 and <clears throat> my uh, 11-year-old daughter's laid out on the couch like watching her tablet. I was like, what is going on? And then I saw Tam, she's laid out too. So we're all sick, so it's good stuff. It's good for the soul. All right. Second Corinthians chapter 10. <clears throat> Last week, uh, we looked at chapter 8 and 9. We covered them together because they're one topic. If you remember Paul here, uh, this is actually at least, remember, at least the third uh, letter that Paul has sent to the Corinthians. We know that because 1 Corinthians 6 says, this is now the second time I'm writing to you. Uh, so there were some letters, or at least uh, one additional letter, if not two, some think, and uh, definitely a visit that take place in between the two. Uh, the first letter is incredibly um, uh, corrective by nature, right? He's addressing a bunch of stuff that's going wrong uh, in their church. And then this second one, or the one that we have in our hands, it's called 2 Corinthians, is a follow-up to that letter. And so one of the things that had happened uh, in about a year prior to this particular letter is the Corinthians had, as a church, had volunteered to take an offering to send to the saints there in Jerusalem, but they hadn't yet fulfilled that. So um, the, their desire to get this offering had actually motivated the churches of Macedonia, which were significantly more impoverished. They're in northern Greece versus southern Greece, where Corinth is. And uh, it motivated these northern churches in Macedonia to give, and so they had given their gift, but uh, or, excuse me, <clears throat> the Corinthians had not sent theirs yet. So chapter 8 and 9 is Paul writing back to them and encouraging them and saying, look, you guys said you would do this. Now it's time to follow through on what you said you would do. Uh, but in chapter 10, as we get in today, it's a complete uh, gear shift. It's a, it's a completely different topic. Uh, it's not giving any more. This topic is uh, perhaps a, a tad more weighty than this because he's about to talk about uh, apostolic authority or his authority and how he's planning on visiting them and discussing some of the difficulties that they're still having. If you recall, uh, he's addressed it already in the letter a couple times. <clears throat> he has critics in Corinth. And there uh, it could be different types of critics. There could be some Gnosticism involved, kind of hidden knowledge type of stuff, and all matter is evil and whatnot. Um, most likely, in addition, though, there's probably some Judaizing stuff. So uh, as we see even today, so back then also, there were people that would uh, propagate the idea that, yes, Jesus is kind of a good start. He's the Messiah. But after that, you need circumcision. Uh, you need uh, the dietary laws, just different aspects of the law. Uh, circumcision, Sabbath, and dietary laws were kind of the three big ones. Uh, today, we have a different version of that, right? Today, we kind of have like... Um, <clears throat> Jesus is a good start, but it also takes baptism, or it also takes the King James Bible, or something to that extent. So the Jesus plus doctrine is not a new doctrine. It's not something that is surprising. It's just what was going on there. So Paul, in chapter 10, is actually going to begin to address the critics, essentially. And he's, he's writing uh, not to the whole church, definitely, but also as a bit of a warning to the critics. Now, having said that... <clears throat> Really what we're talking about today in general is, is dealing with conflict. Uh, Paul uses the language he, or I should say the, the language he uses is our weapons, right? And, uh, and we'll get into it, we'll read it. Uh, but because there's some pretty strong language in uh, 2 
Corinthians 10, I want to actually go back because we're fans of context, right? So if you don't mind, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, <clears throat> this is actually a favorite uh, verse of mine as far as uh, church leadership and um, just really any time we're, we're dealing with each other. And so we can see the vein in which Paul is, is looking to exercise this authority. And it's, it's been a vein through this whole letter. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 23, Paul says this, I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith uh, you stand firm. So, as we said before, there's a visit that takes place that Paul talks about in the second letter. You might recall that when we went through it. And he says, he says that they had a painful visit when they were there. So evidently, Paul has written the first letter. There's a, uh, the, well, it would be the second letter, our first Corinthians. He's written that. He then visits, has a painful visit, and then he's telling them here in 2 Corinthians, I didn't come back again because I wanted to spare you. So the reason I want to read this is Paul gives a great explanation of how he's looking to use his authority as an apostle uh, in the early church. He says, we're not here to lord over your faith. We're not here to lord over your faith. We're here to be helpers of your joy. In other words, Paul recognized the situation in Corinth was volatile, and so he decides to not go back there, to let them ruminate, to let them marinate, to let them whatever, consider and work through what's going on so he doesn't cause another uh, kerfuffle, as it were, uh, in, in the church there. And I think this is important. <clears throat> we also can see this in Jesus. If you recall there in the Upper Room Discourse, at one point, I think it's John 14, he tells the disciples, he says, I have many things to say to you but you cannot bear them now. You guys remember that? I think it's noteworthy that the Lord of the universe stares right at the 12 apostles to be, right? And he says, I have stuff for you to know, but you can't hear it right now. It's important for us to understand. And he says, he says so what I'm going to do, he says, I'm going away, and I'm sending the comforter, and he's going to lead you into all truth. So Jesus makes this statement. I think it's a very profound and important statement for us when we're dealing with conflict and we're talking about uh, uh, chapter 10 here in a moment when we read it. It's important to understand that there were times in Paul's ministry, there were times in Jesus' ministry where he says, there's some truth I could share with you, but you can't bear it right now, so I'm not going to share it with you. It's going to come later. So this is all kind of as a, a, a foundation as we look into chapter uh, 10 because there is, there's some strong wording in chapter 10 that could make a person feel uncomfortable. Um, <clears throat> but we'll jump into it. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1, he says this, Paul writing to Corinth, he says, By the humility and the gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and we make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of, obedience, of disobedience once your obedience is complete. 
You are judging by appearance. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority of the Lord gave, excuse me, so even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than teach, uh, tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to, <clears throat> I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking uh, amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that, we, <clears throat> that what we are in our letters, when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. So a pretty strong letter. I can imagine that if at some point you received a letter like this personally in your life, it'd be like, whoa, okay, what's going on? How do I deal with this? So Paul, obviously, he's started the church. He's written multiple, uh, you know, he's there for 18 months. He's written multiple letters to the church. He has a great concern for the church. And now he's going to use some really strong language, which is why I kind of want to start in chapter 1. And that idea that he's, he's writing to them. He's not trying to control them. He's not trying to say, you have to do this or you have to do that. Or he's, he says, look, I'm not here to lord your faith, dictate to you what you have to do. But he says, what I am here to do is to be a helper of your joy. And so that's why sometimes, in this, for example, in this case, where there's going to be hard words that are shared. But it's important that when he's, uh, <clears throat> when he's essentially warning them, I'm coming, and I'm going to take care of business there, in the, the bad doctrine that's being circulated, that he's not doing it from a place of pompousness. He's not doing it from a place of assault or attack or something like that. And that's really kind of the crux of what I want to work around today. We see his heart in chapter 1, but also in the beginning of chapter 10, where he says there, by humility and gentleness of Christ. So by, it just means uh, because of or through. That's what he means. So he's saying because of these attributes that, that Jesus is, he's humble, right? He's humble and he's gentle, um, he says, that's how I want to approach you. So humility and gentleness. Gentleness is an, an interesting word. Uh, it's the idea of forbearance or, or tolerance, right? So you think about that for a second. So Paul's writing them. He, want, he wants to address some things. And he cites as his motivator and as he's, the way he's going to go about it as Christ's gentleness. So when you think about <clears throat> Jesus and his gentleness, it's, it's actually pretty impressive, right? Have you ever been annoyed by someone asking you too many questions? Especially when you're like looking for an address or trying to figure something out or you're trying to fit, right? And, and, and somebody just keeps asking you something. Usually it's children, but sometimes it's not, right? And, it's, and you're just like, ah, that's not gentleness, right? And you think about everything that Jesus ever, the questions he got, like Nicodemus, how do I get back into my mom's womb? Like, there are apparently stupid questions. Like that, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, or, or the time where you have the brother who's, who raised, you know, Jesus is walking by and he says, hey, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. Hey, Jesus, make sure I get mine. Or Pilate, you know, why don't your servants fight? If you're a king, why don't your servants fight? And Jesus says, well, if my, if my kingdom was of this world, my servants would fight. But it's not, so they don't. Or, the, you know, or tell me, are you the king of the Jews? Even to dialogue with Pilate much less the, the crucifixion, to, be, to tell people, someday you'll quote this proverb back to me, physician, heal yourself. The fact that Jesus would interact and talk with human beings, tell them, knowingly, I'm going to go to be crucified, and you're going to mock me with this very phrase. 
So Paul now reaching back says, that gentleness, that forbearance, that tolerance that Christ had, that's how I want to address you guys and the problems that are going on in your church. The other side of it is humility. <clears throat> and and uh, you know, my favorite definition for humility comes from uh, C.S. Lewis, where he makes the point that, that humility is not self-abasement. It's not saying like, oh, I'm trash or I'm garbage or whatever, because those things aren't true, right? You have intrinsic value as a human being because God said so. But humility is actually the act of not considering oneself. So because when we look at Christ's humility, none of us would, would, would place that humility on him, right? None of us would say, oh, uh, Jesus probably just thought he was trash, and so he just didn't say much. We, we, that's not true, right? But Jesus didn't consider himself. In other words, when people said mean things to him, it wasn't about his offense. It wasn't about how he felt about it. It was about truth and about doing the will of his Father, right? And so it's, it's in that place where Paul says, look, because Christ had that humility, because Christ had that gentleness, that's how I want to move forward with you. These are really important foundations because when you get to verse 6 and he says, uh, and we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience. You can, you can kind of get this feeling like Paul's like flexing and like stretching, like, okay, we're going to, you know, or something like that. That's not his heart at all, right? His heart is to be helpers of their joy, to help them to walk with God in, in, their, in, their, in this area which they're profoundly dysfunctional. So now Paul's going to actually quote. He says, I, Paul, who am timid, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, when face to face with you, but bold toward you went away. So this is one of the uh, accusations that his critics would give. You might have noticed too in the second part uh, there in verse 10, he says, for some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. So these are what Paul's credit, uh, uh, not credits, but his, his dissenters, these are the people that are attacking Paul. This is what they had to say. They said that he was timid in person. They said that his speech accounted for nothing. That he was a very unimpressive speaker. They said, he, he, basically, you act really big and bad when you're writing letters. But when push comes to shove, you're a coward. That's what they're saying about Paul. And so Paul's kind of making a play here where he says, when this gentleness and humility, that's how I want to come to you. But they're mistaking it where he says, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you. So what's happening, Paul is telling them, you're making a mistake in the sense that you think that gentleness and humility is being timid. And he's saying that's not at all. The word timid here is actually the same word that Jesus uses about himself. In Matthew chapter 11, when he says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly. That word lowly is the same word here as timid. So Paul is telling them, you're making a mistake. You think that I'm timid. You think that I'm scared to address these difficulties that are going on in your church and these false doctrines that people are making. He's saying, I'm not timid. I'm trying to be gentle. I'm trying to be kind. I'm trying to, to relate to you in a way that you're going to be able to understand it and that you'll be able to receive it. The other side of that, he says that you're, you're bold or it means confident or courageous toward, you, uh, toward them when he's away. But in verse 2, he says this. He says, I beg, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. <coughs> Excuse me. So Paul here, he's saying, look, I'm begging you. I'm asking you. Essentially, please repent. 
Please don't make it so that when I come there, I have to be as bold as I think I'm going to have to be. In other words, he's anticipating that he's going to have to show up and in a sense clean house. That he's going to have to address these people and to be stern with certain people that are teaching falsehoods. Now he's doing this, remember his whole motivation is what? Helpers of joy. Right? Because when you start including obeying the Levitical law, when you start including works into salvation, when you start including uh, you know, having to use the King James Bible, which obviously they don't have yet because that didn't come around until 1611, but, you know, all these, when you start including all these things, you rob people of their joy. Because no longer it's just the simplicity of the gospel, the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his son, right? His only begotten son. It's no, it's no longer as simple as the fact that God loves human beings. And so he sent his son Jesus to literally pay what we owe for our moral wrong, our sin. And then Christ raises from the dead, showing his power over sin. And by anyone who simply wants to look to him and ask for that forgiveness, has eternal salvation through his blood. And when we corrupt it, when we say, no, 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 it's, it's, it's that plus make sure you take a Sabbath. No, 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 it's that plus make sure if you're male and a patriarch of your home that you get circumcised. No, 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 it's that plus you have to go to church every Sunday and sometimes midweek. No, 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 it's that plus you, and we, we make all these pluses. And that's not, the, that's not the gospel. The gospel of this person is saved by grace through faith. And so Paul says, in order to be a helper of your joy, I'm going to come there and I'm going to be bold to the point where he says, we will bring, we will punish every act of disobedience. Every one of these teachers who's telling you that, every one of these teachers who's, who's bringing you into this legalistic bondage, every one of these teachers who says there's secret knowledge and that all matter is evil, Gnosticism and things like that. He says, we're going to punish them. We're going to publicly handle this. And again, if that was from a place of terribleness and a bad heart and just wanting superiority, that'd be really bad, right? But because from a place where he's saying, I want to be, and my you know, people that are with me, Titus, Timothy, we want the best for you, so we're willing to be involved in conflict for you. Now, he makes this point. He says... <clears throat> That these people that he's believing or believes that he'll need to be bold with, uh, he says to them that we li- they think we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. So these people that are his critics, he says, they think that we essentially live or have authority or are operating in the way the world does. But he says, our weapons, the way we war, it has nothing to do with this, how the world wars. So how does the world war in conflict? How do individuals, there's the world out there, it could be worldly people in here, whatever it might be. What is the world's, <clears throat> you know, the world system, however you want to look at it, how does, in general, society handle conflict? Typically, it can be to withdraw, right? Some of us just withdraw from conflict. We don't want any part of it. We just want it to go away. We just want everything to be smooth. And we'll act sometimes in destructive ways in order to accomplish that, right? But in general, when people, because our context is what? It's in the church with bad doctrine. People saying things that aren't true about how the gospel works, right? So in this context, 
How is it that the world's ideologies could sink in or be part of how the church handles conflict? It's actually pretty simple, I think. You know, if we look at a lot of, uh, like, for example, Christians in social media, what does the world use? How does the world try to get you to believe what they believe? Usually dominance, right? Dominance, little quips. Uh, a quip meaning, like, you know, we, they'll, they'll tweet something out in, in some sort of sarcasm as if that will solve the issue. Uh, the world <clears throat> tries to use... Um, and again, there's nothing wrong. Education can be very profitable. But a lot of times the world will try to use letters before and after their names to say, see, this is why you have to listen to me. This is why you have to do what I do. Manipulation is a huge tactic for the world, right? The, the, to try to get with, when we're, when we're operating in the world system or when the world is operating in its own system and it's trying to get people to do things, it uses manipulation. How does it manipulate people? Fear, right? We get, if you scare someone enough, shame, shame someone enough, they'll do what you want them to do. All right, there's all sorts of different ways that the world can use uh, to try to essentially get its point across, if you will. Uh, boasting, arguing, bickering, complaining, fault-finding. I just described every major news, net news network. Why is it that it's news when, when somebody did 65 years ago? I mean, I'm not saying that they should or shouldn't. I'm not justifying anything someone's done 65 years ago. But it's, it, you know, the reason the news is willing to supply that is because that's what gets clicked on. Right? We love gossip. We love it. We love it when, when somebody who we don't, especially if we don't agree with them theologically or politically, we love the clickbait. So-and-so owns so-and-so in Congress. Ooh, I'm in. Who got owned? So-and-so said this or whatever. And, 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 we, and we, we love it. But then when we click on it, it's not motivated by love. It's not motivated by trying to unite people in, in order to see righteousness done. So many times the world's way of dealing, waging war and dealing with things, it's really opposite of Christ's way. Because it's not in gentleness. It's not in humility. It's I'm going to make you believe what I believe. Or if you don't, I'm going to shun you, right? I mean, that's really what we have almost completely in our society today, especially between the political parties, right? If you, if you don't believe what I believe, then you're an idiot, and you're a moron, and you know nothing of truth, and you're a sheeple, or you're, you know, whatever it might be. And we have all these labels that we put on people for that. But in the end, is any of that really going to help someone come to truth? How do you do with truth when it's presented in a way that's very assaultive? If someone begins to bring truth in your life or in my life and they start off with, you moron, right? You go, oh, I'm in. Please tell me more. Not typically, right? Typically, we instantly respond with being defensive and all sorts of things. So Paul says, the way that we're trying to work amongst you and the way we've always worked with his companions is not the way the, war, uh, the world does it. He says we don't use those tools. Do they work? Yes. That's why the world uses them. Are they efficient for building the kingdom of God? Absolutely not. Right? They'll garner typically regret, shame, bitterness, that's what all those tactics usually bring in, even if you can force someone to change. So instead of all, instead of which, what do we have? 
Well, he says the tools that we have, it's interesting, he says that our tools, they're divine in nature, right? They're divine in, in, in power. Verse 4, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient, excuse me, to Christ. So he says, <coughs> excuse me, that our weapons, they're completely different than what the world uses. Instead, these are divinely powered weapons. These are things that, drive, that derive their source and their success from principles and the actual power of God through his Holy Spirit, right? So these are going to be completely different. Let's just take one example. You know, Jesus told us not to repay evil for evil, right? You guys familiar with that? Well, he did, if you're not. So <clears throat> you can Google it if you'd like. In, uh, but in Romans chapter 12, a lot of the New Testament authors echoed the same ideas, but they added um, different um, nuance to it. It's very fascinating. So in Romans chapter 12, we're just talking about <coughs> how we can be people that are warring, if you will, uh, from, a, from gentleness and from humility for truth, right? So in Romans chapter 12, if we start in verse 16, Paul, and this is Paul in speaking uh, immediately to uh, essentially the Romans in, a, in, in the practical side of how to respond to the gospel, how to respond to the, to the uh, promises of God, and to respond to uh, God sovereignly working through the world. And it says there in Romans chapter 12, verse 16, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low positions. Do not be conceited. Verse 17, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. So he says here, he says, be careful. He says, <clears throat> number one, don't repay evil for evil. So to me, oftentimes, verses like that are kind of verses that you go, yeah, 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 yeah. And they could just get tucked in the back of our minds, right? And we don't really think about them after that. Because usually if we're repaying someone evil for evil, we're pretty amped up, right? Uh, the situation is escalated. We've moved beyond uh, emotional stability at that point, right? And now we're on the aggressive. We are assaulting, so probably not physically, but we're angry, right? So when we're repaying someone evil for evil, you can take any example. It could be the, like, uh, you know, last service we talked about, let's say you're going through the roundabout, right? You're going through the roundabout, and something happens that you may or may not be aware of, and someone tells you you're number one, right, with a hand gesture, right? So that may generate some feelings, right, some emotions. It could generate fear. It could generate uh, a, a desire to withdraw, or it could generate a, a desire to respond, right? In those sinner people out here, I know none of us would, but we'll just use it as an example, right? You might feel compelled to tell them they're number one also, right? That you appreciate the gesture, and you're glad to reciprocate it, and depending on how escalated you get, you might be willing to pull over, Right? You might be willing to have words or more, right? Because you've escalated. They, were, they offended you, and now you've escalated, and your desire, my desire, is to now offend them or do harm to them, right? I'm returning the evil they gave me for evil, 
So the thing about something like this is that you can't really respond to your own emotional state until you realize it, right? This is something that's important. So years ago, uh, when I first started, I'm not on it anymore, but I spent uh, on the fire department, we had to do all these tests. You even have to test how to get on and off a fire truck safely. So it's, they're all, if there's a test, it's because someone died doing it, generally. So one of the tests that you have to do is when you raise a ladder. And when you raise a ladder, you always have to vocalize, I'm looking for overhead obstructions. You always have to say, if you go to your test, and you, and you have your ladder in your hand, and you don't say, I'm looking for overhead obstructions, and you lift it, they'll, just tell, they'll say, it's a critical failure, you're done. So you can just take your ladder, go ahead and put it back over there, and reset for the next candidate. It's over. And the reason being is if you, for example, if you have your aluminum ladder, and you were to set it against the power line coming to the home, not going to work out for you, right? Good chance that it's not going to work out for you. So there's all these things. So one of the things that the fire department drills into you over and over again, actually so does the National Guard and other things, is this idea. Situational awareness, right? Being aware of your situation. So that was something, not, situational awareness wasn't new to me, but definitely having to train myself to be situationally aware, or at least to vocalize that I'm doing that, right? That was new, and it took some training for me to go, okay, every time I'm in this situation or that situation or this situation, I want to be aware of what I'm doing or saying or dangers that could be around me, right? So something like this, not returning evil for evil, is an actual step-by-step -step process that some of us might still need to learn because we still just go off when we feel emotions, Right? See, that's, that's immaturity, right? A big part, if not the biggest part, of having children and trying to help them is helping them deal with their emotions, right? Is helping them to understand you don't have to have a freak out because X, Y, or Z happened. Yes, we said no to the candy bar in the store, but no, you don't get to have a freak out. You have to control yourself, right? And you can talk to your kids about emotions, the state of their heart, and how terrible it makes them feel versus how when they let things go, there's this you know, lightness to life and things, all that kind of stuff. But so most of us, or a lot of us, we still are growing emotionally. And we can tell because of what online looks like, right? Most people just immediately want to return evil for evil. And for most of us, that can often be our first instinct because that is our fallen nature, that when someone wrongs us, and sometimes it can be so slight. Sometimes it can be, even be a perceived slight. And we're like, wait, what did you say? What was that? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Right? And we, we want, we're going to investigate. Did you slight me? Because if you did, there's going to be problems. Right? That's pride in us. That's not humility. That's not, that's not gentleness. So if I'm called to in a sense, control my emotions, I want to start learning how to do that. So it's interesting because Paul gives us a remedy here. He says, don't return evil for evil. Instead, he says, be careful. All right, if we'll go back and, and read it again. He says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. So now all of a sudden, Paul gives us a step to become situationally aware. So in the moment that I have perceived that evil has been done to me, and I have whatever instant, I can't control what my instant response is, right? 
I can't control what comes out of my heart. It's been wisely said, when you squeeze a sponge, whatever comes out of a sponge, what was already in it, right? So if my heart gets squeezed and, and, and nothing but pride and rage come out of it, or defeatism or whatever it might be, that's what was already there. Satan didn't come along and make me mad or something like that. Now, that's garbage. I made me mad because I'm a proud loser, right? So if I experience rage, it's me. It's not Satan. It's not the spirit of rage. It's me. So if I get squeezed and that's the garbage that comes out of me, I got to be accountable for it between me and God. But in that moment, as soon as I realize what is coming out of my heart, what my response is, what my response is happening, now that I can control, right? And so Paul says here, when instead of returning evil for evil, be careful, or literally in some English translations put it, be thoughtful. So the way to self-awareness, the way to situational awareness is thoughtfulness. That's an investment though, right? That takes time. So as the Holy Spirit speaks to my heart, whether I'm going through traffic or I have some sort of dust up here at the church with someone else or whatever it might be, as soon as I feel that in my soul, in my heart, as soon as I realize that I'm responding to it in a negative way, I, now I have something I can do. I can be thoughtful. Stop. What is going to actually be the best for everyone in this situation? Because that's what it is. He says, right? He says, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Now, can you satisfy everyone? Can you ever do what's right in the eyes of everyone? No, you really can't. So is he literally saying, you need to come up with a solution in your life for every situation that will make everybody happy? No, you'd go crazy, right? It's impossible. Uh, you can be super kind to someone and they'll receive it as, why are you being so nice to me? What do you really want? You know, whatever, whatever it might be. But the idea is, how can I be reasonably kind? How can I do something that's reasonably would be acceptable by the majority, by most people, right? And that's where you have things like love, humility, gentleness, right? These are, in general, reasonably acceptable from other people, right? That's what Christ did for us, and that's what we have. So in this case, what's one of the weapons that we have? It's the fruit of the Spirit, right? We have the love, we have the peace, we have the, when, when the Spirit speaks to our heart, we, we can be thoughtful and stop our response. Now, that's the hard part, isn't it? Especially if I have a habitual response from the flesh or from my old nature. If I've lived my whole life just, just instantly going from you know, zero to 100, just what, what, what? It's going to be hard to curb that and it, and it, because that's become my habitual response. So as I become more thoughtful, as the Holy Spirit reveals more, you know, every time that that comes up in me, the hardest part is the decision I make to stop the thought process or the behavior that's going to be destructive. Does that make sense? The sin. And instead I go, okay, I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to think about this. So what does that look like practically? So there you are, you're in the roundabout, you know, you're number one, and, and, and whatever you do, right? Whatever, if you start to roll your window down and you're ready to, you know, whatever, unleash the wrath or whatever, and, you, and the Holy Spirit says, don't return evil for evil. Don't do that. And you go, Okay, in that moment, I could think, what would be better? I could start with rolling my window back up, right? I could start with just going along my day, not trying to mean mong this person. Uh, there's, a, there's, there's decisions I can make that I don't have to move forward in these ways that the world handles things. Passive aggressiveness, petty complaints, all that, right? I don't have to do that. 
I'm able to, in the moment, be thoughtful. What would be the best for everyone here? Peter makes a very similar statement in 1 Peter. So he has a little bit of different uh, application, but he says the same thing. In 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8, he says, <coughs> excuse me, Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. So those are our tools, those are our weapons. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. <coughs> Excuse me. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. And he goes on and he quotes the Old Testament. I'm not going to read that. <coughs> Excuse me. So in Peter's version, he gives us another option. <coughs> Instead of returning evil for evil, we're called to have all these um, kind of mindsets in place, being like-minded, being sympathetic, loving one another, being compassionate and humble, that we come prepared with these things. <clears throat> then, when evil does happen, because evil still will happen, Right? We're in a building with a bunch of sinners. We will sin against each other. I'm not advocating for that. I don't think it's good. I'm not excusing that. It's just the truth, right? We will say things or do things to each other, either intentionally or by mistake, that will offend each other. But what you do with that offense really kind of determines your character, what you're really like. If you get offended and your response is to walk in that offense and, the, and some sort of victimization from offense, then you're out of line, and you're not walking with what God has for you. Now, that doesn't mean you weren't legitimately offended. It doesn't mean something didn't legitimately happen to you. But what you do with that will determine whether you walk in victory in these things or if you just walk in anger and disappointment. So Peter says, when you experience that evil, but you're, you're, you're prepping yourself, whether it's by devotional time or church time or worship song time or whatever it is, you're preparing yourself with the truth of being like-minded and, and, and sympathetic and so forth, then now we don't insult when someone insults. On the contrary, we will pray evil with blessing. And we might have to think about what that means because that could be different in every situation. If we're in the roundabout, that might be they're just yielding and letting that person go ahead of us. You can have the first Fred Meyer parking spot. It's fine. I'll be okay parking wherever. I don't have to tailgate them after they go past me to show them I'm really disappointed with their middle finger and the way they chose to go through the roundabout, right? I don't have to be passive aggressive. I don't have to get on Facebook or text a friend. You would not believe what happened to me. Looking for some sort of validation. Oh, that driver does suck. You know, it's just, that's how the world wars. That's how the world deals with things. And many of us, including myself, we've grown up with, the, with those, ideas, uh, those ideas. And so it's, it's, been, it's been difficult, or it can be difficult, to move out of those ideas and move forward. So here's another thing. <clears throat> in, if I'm in church and someone wrongs me, I can dialogue with them. right? I can, what, what, what brought you to this conclusion? Why do you feel that way? Why, what, would you mind telling me what makes... Why you're upset by that? Or if we know that they legitimately had some negative or evil thing occur to them from another person in the church, then hopefully we can address that, right? And the Bible lays out how those things are addressed. And the funny thing is, the Bible never mentions like 
Instagram or Facebook in addressing those things. All right? It's always the individual. It's always going back to the individual, going back to the person. So if someone comes to me and says, you know, when you said X, Y, or Z in the sermon, <clears throat> if I disagree with them, I have two options, right? I can be like, that's because you're stupid. That's why you disagreed with me. Right? I can lay in like the world does. I can try to manipulate them. I can go, here's 15 facts of why you need to just buck up, and I can do all that, right? Will they be one to Christ or to their brethren through that? No. Will they even receive whatever truth it was I was trying to give them? No. They'll go away upset, right? But if someone comes to you and says, like, hey, this is how you, know, you said this, and usually because we're crazy, we don't typically go to someone and say, when this happened, this is how I felt about it. Can you tell me your side? We don't usually do that. Usually we roll in and we're like, you sucked, and now there's an account for it. So we can deal with how we want to deal with that godly, right? No matter how they came to us. If we're going to go to someone else, let's go to them with like, hey, when you said those things, when you picked up the last chicken leg and then waved it in my face at the potluck and said, ha ha, I get to eat it, it kind of hurt my feelings a little bit. You know, whatever. I don't know. You know, it was disappointing. It seemed, you know, are you okay? Why would you be so excited about a chicken leg? Right? What happened there? And we can dialogue about it. So there's how we respond whether someone comes to us with a, a valid or an invalid or a valid in a negative, and they, they, they do it in a negative way or an inappropriate way or an invalid in an appropriate way or an invalid in an inappropriate way. However they approach us, how we respond is huge, right? We're not returning evil for evil. Instead, we want to return evil for blessing. I'm, yeah, I'm glad you got that chicken leg. God bless you in that. All right? I'm going to pray for you that you might have some better priorities in your life. I wouldn't vocalize that, but you... That would be some way that you can bless them. And it goes, it goes on and on. There's multiple uh, examples of that. In James, he kind of sums up this, at least in our, our current, James chapter 1, in our current, uh, I don't know, meta for how we communicate, I guess. James shares some real wisdom in this. In James chapter 1, he says this, verse 19, he says, My dear brothers and sisters... Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. We can just tuck that away. Slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to be angry. That's so opposite of our society. Our society is, I'm going to be swift to, to, to speak. I remember I was in a, years ago, a bunch of us were in a conversation and one of the people brought up an article and said, hey, I read this article, I think it was about parenting or something, and said, hey, um, I read this article, I'm curious, you know, have you guys read it, what did, what did you think about it? And I just remember, with respect, it was a younger person, and this other younger person goes, well, I haven't read it, but this is what I think of parenting as a single individual. And I just kind of chuckled, because I'm like, that's cute. You've never had children and you're going to dictate to a bunch, not that we all have it right. So you're not going to read the article. You never had children. And now you're going to tell us all how it works. That's kind of how we roll, right? I remember years ago, uh, someone sent me a, an aspartame study. Aspartame is pretty much Satan, depending on who you talk to. It's in like Diet Pepsi and stuff like that. And it was somebody who was saying... I'm not pro-aspartame, all right? So please don't go like, well, James wants everybody to drink aspartame. I don't care what you do with aspartame, all right? 
The Lord be with you in whatever you decide. But they sent me this article about aspartame, and it was like, see, I told you aspartame you know, causes cancer. I was like, I never said it didn't. I just said that the FDA approved it, and I wonder why that is. And, uh, and so I started reading the study. And right at the beginning of the study, it's like a 25-page study, right at the very first intro, because, you know, the scientific method is I don't care what the outcome is. I just want the truth, right? I'm, I'm summarizing, but that's, that's science, right? Right at the top it says, my mom died of cancer, and now I'm going to prove that aspartame causes cancer. I was like, okay, okay. this seems unbiased and legitimate, <laughs> right? And then I read it, and I find out basically what this lady did is took rats, 100 rats, and she dosed 50 of them with the human equivalent of like 36 Diet Pepsis every day. And then on the other 50, she didn't. She just gave them water and food. And I was like, I'm pretty sure if any human drank one day of 36 Pepsis, there'd be an issue. But this is evidence, right? Because that's how we roll. We don't like something. We find silly articles or whatever. And, that's, and when someone said, we can't do that. Not if we want to have, have, have like legitimate conversation, legitimate work through conflict, right? We can't just pose ideas, find garbage evidence for it, no matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's the Sabbath or if it's aspartame. It doesn't matter if it's the King James Bible or if it's you should have drums in worship or not. It doesn't matter. We can't just, just, just throw things out there, pithy statements, and, and expect like mic drops. It's not real. It's not how we interact. We have to be those, right, that we, <clears throat> as James says here, that we're those that we're, one, he calls them dear brothers and sisters, that we're, we listen. Why are you upset about the drums? Why are you upset about the chicken leg? Why are you upset about something that got said from the pulpit? Why are you upset with someone said to you? Why? What happened? And we listen, right? And then we're slow to speak. And then from there, that's the thing. Like, listening literally costs nothing. That's the bizarre thing about it. But then from there, he says, slow to become angry. So when we feel ourselves getting angry, we repent. We take the thought captive. We go, I don't have to get angry about this. And we, we just can listen to someone and move forward. It's, it's, it's incredible how freeing that is. And, and James gives a, a reason for this. In verse 20, he says this, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. See, the, when the world argues, when it manipulates or bullies or whatever it's using to get its way, that, that we adopt sometimes, they have a different goal than we do, right? Their goal is to change our vote or make us feel stupid or uh, just to show they were right. Or whatever. They have all these kind of secondary kind of worthless arguments or, or, or points, the reasons why they're doing it. We have really one reason, and it's to introduce people to Jesus over and over and over again, including one another. See, our motivation is not to be right. It should never to be, just be right. Our motivation should just never to make sure that everybody knows we're right, and you're right, and you're right, and I'm right, and now we can have fellowship. Having fellowship because we all think the exact same thing is fairly false, to be honest. True fellowship is when we know one another and we love each other regardless of what each other believes. It doesn't mean we're going like, to you know, sing kumbaya with the world or something like that. But it means that we can, we can be going in a similar direction. We can be like-minded. But this idea is huge. Our anger, when, when we're angry about something, and maybe it's something genuinely that is, is genuinely wrong, if we approach that from an anger, 
and we go, Wah! it cannot, James says, it cannot reap the righteousness that God wants. It can't. When we try to pigeonhole people or you've been in a discussion and somebody asks a question and they ask it in such a way that if you say yes, it makes you out to be like this horrendous evil Satan and if you say no, it makes you out to be an idiot. Right? People try to trap you with questions. Has that ever driven you to be like, this is a great conversation. I embrace your truth. That you're... No. Right? We rage against it. So there's, there's just over and over and over again, it comes down to loving individuals, listening, talking, repenting, right? When we're, we're in places that are, that are unhealthy, and then moving forward with a, an idea or a plan that we, that we genuinely believe will be the best or will be the most uh, encouraging for the people around us. Right? That's, what, that's what Paul's saying. He's writing to them, and he's saying, we're coming to take care of business. We're not, when we get accused of using the things the world uses, that's not what we're going to do when we get there. We're instead going to use the things that God's given us, the weapons that we have, the fruit of the Spirit and other things, to be able to move forward to see your joy increased. You guys see the difference? One is, we're just going to make everybody believe what we believe, which just is it's asinine. And the other is, we're going to love human beings and keep preaching the gospel to them, and to people in our church, we're going to relate to each other based on the, the truth of the gospel, on the healing power of the gospel, on the, the fellowship of the gospel and what Christ did. And we're moving towards fellowship and building his kingdom rather than being doctrinally correct. They're two substantially, or politically correct for that matter, they're two substantially different things. Lastly, <clears throat> we'll look in Ephesians. So in Ephesians chapter 6, we may be familiar with this. It's the, the armor of God. But in Ephesians chapter 6, we're, we're given a couple of weapons or tools. In verse 16, he says this, In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. He goes on. <coughs> Excuse me. So we're kind of given three things here. <coughs> Excuse me. Three things we're going to talk about. Number one, the shield of faith. So in Roman, uh, Roman dominates the known, the Rome. The Rome? <laughs> Rome dominates the, the known world at this point, right? And so the Roman army, <laughs> you might have seen like movies like Gladiator or, yeah, I don't know, Ben-Hur. Uh, Roman troops were some of the most advanced troops in the world. They were the most advanced troops in the world. That's why they were just basically able to sweep through everywhere. The Greek Empire, Germania, everywhere they went. They just crushed everyone. And in large part, it was because of their shields. And if you've seen those movies, you know that... <clears throat> the shield's about three feet tall. It's kind of rounded. And so what they would do is they'd make a, a shield wall similar to like some of the Norwegian Viking tribes and whatnot, but it was significantly more efficient. Um, and then the, the second person, so the first one kneels and puts their shield in front of them. The second person then comes and puts the shield over the top, right? So then you have this kind of strip 
about four, three to four inch strip across the two shields. So then everybody else is essentially protected. And then that's why they carried short swords. The swords were designed basically to stab everybody in the groin uh, right above the, uh, the two shields where they connected. And so what that would do, obviously, if you're pressed up against the shield and you take a sword uh, to the downstairs, that's going to render you pretty inactive, right? You're going you're gonna to fall down, which enables them to stab you on the ground. Incredibly efficient. They decimated armies with this uh, technology. So Paul here, the, the idea of a shield is not just a defensive thing. It was very offensive. The, the Romans marched forward with their shields. They broke through walls, human walls with their shields. They, they used the shields as an offensive tool. I bring that up because, yes, it quenches the fiery darts, and we'll talk about that. But the, 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 the reality is that they would the, the shield bash or pushing forward the shield, these type of things, we are not called as Christians, and I think sometimes it gets kind of put this way for us, like we're hiding, like the big bad devil's out there, and, and, and he's, you know, whatever, working in politics, or he's doing this, or he's doing that. Those things are true, and that's fine. But we're not fearful, right? The shield of faith is like, I'm going to curl up behind this little ball and just hope that Jesus comes someday. I'm just going to get behind my shield and just hope that life just changes someday, right? That's not what it's there for. It's there, it says, what it does, it's the shield of faith that quenches fiery darts. So what's faith? Well, faith is having confidence in what God said. That's literally what it is. It's not how you get faith. You get faith by walking with God and experiencing his truth through his word and then seeing it come to flourishing in your life, right? That's how you get faith. But what faith is, is actually just possessing that confidence. And sometimes we have incredible faith, and sometimes we have terrible faith, right? And it can depend on what we ate that day sometimes. I mean, it's just, it can depend on hormone levels. It can, all sorts of things, right, can, can make us think different things. But the idea is that no matter, the, the, if you want to quantify faith by size or some other quantity, the idea is that I am able to move forward in life knowing that the big bad Satan is out there, because I expect God to work no matter what. I can push into enemy lines. I can push into the, quote, fiery darts, the, the burning skewers, the, the difficulties. I mean, it seems like insult to injury. You know, it's one thing to get shot with an arrow. It seems significantly disappointing to be shot with a flaming arrow, right? And so these, the idea is, in the worst of circumstances, the worst thing that Satan can do, I'm going to be okay, God will use all things together for good for those that love him and those who are called according to his purpose. So that's my shield of faith. And it's not just a, it's not a defense. It's not just defense. It's, it's very offensive, especially in the Roman army. And then the other side of it, he says, along with this expectation that God's going to do something great, this full coverage of, of that God's going to do something great, we have the sword of the Spirit or the Word of God, right? Now, it, uh, a lot of times the, the Word, Word, all right. In the scriptures, like for example, in John 1, in the beginning was the word. Uh, you guys familiar with that? So that's logos, or logos, depending on how you want to pronounce it. So the logos is like, it's an expression of a thought. So, you know, all over the place, when you see the word, word, in the scripture, it's that, it's logos. But this, is, this word, rhema, is only used a, f a couple of times. It's a different word. 
This isn't just the generic revelation of God, not that I'm trying to call God generic or his revelation, but it's not just this overarching revelation of God. This literally means that a rhema word is like a prophetic word. It literally, it's like a word that is just right at the right time, that it ministers at the right time. That's what a, a rhema word is, okay? So it's not just a, a generic, he's not saying that, that you know, and I, it's fun, I get it, like people like to hold it up and be like, this is my sword. Eh, okay, that's cool, but... It's, it's not a genie, right? The Bible is not a genie. You can't rub it on your face and get encouraged. right? You can't just have it sitting around the house and get encouraged. How many of us have read the Bible for ourselves and it got nothing? Or we've gone to uh, you know, Bible teachings, hopefully not this one, and got nothing, right? Because it was, it, the Bible was explained in a weird way or in a way I couldn't understand or in a way it didn't make sense or is used out of context. or There can be a million different ways, right? So it's not just about swinging this thing around and trying to cleave with it and just hoping for the best or taking some, some verse out of context and trying to apply it to my life. It's about understanding, internalizing, and accepting through the Holy Spirit what God has for me. That's, that's what this, these rhema words are. So we're not just swinging wildly. It's where God ministers to our hearts, whether it's through a teaching or a worship song or whatever it might be, uh, internal revelation about his word. Well, that allows me to then combat and move forward the sword of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit of God is using God's Word in our life, and that's one of the uh, weapons of warfare that we have. And so Paul says his weapons of war, in the context of dealing with church stuff, but it also works personally, that it, 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 <clears throat> it brings down strongholds, right? It breaks down strongholds. It, it's able to combat thoughts and take thoughts captive. And so for us, in light of an application, like how do we move forward with what Paul is saying? Well, as far as we know, Paul's not going to show up at our church anytime soon and start taking names, right? But personally, for us, are we open to what God is saying to us? Are we open to humbling ourselves? Are we open to you know, the things that we've read about, to not returning evil for evil? And if the answer is no, then let's be honest about that, right? That's how we're going to use... And how the word of God is going to be, uh, if you will, fruitful in our lives when we're honest about it. And then when we ask, you know, by the power of the Spirit or, or, you know, not to get all metaphysical or something, but in the sense of like asking God to speak to my heart, to change my heart, to open my eyes, to give me awareness of when I'm doing something he doesn't want me to do. To, that, I would, that I would also have power to move forward, that I would make the decision to obey him. Right? These are ways that we position ourselves to walk in what God has for us and to utilize those tools. And when we're using the weapons of war that he has, and we're doing it with humility and gentleness, the fruit that can come from our own hearts and the hearts of around us, as, of people around us as we're interacting, is going to be incredible. Because when we're just humbly saying, man, God loves you, this thing that you're toying with right now is destroying your life. It's going to be significantly different than, don't drink! Don't sex! Right? Don't drug. There's no life in that. But when there's invitation, when there's companionship, when there's fellowship, there's life, all of a sudden it's not just about abstaining from those things. It's about learning about and fellowshipping with one another as we fellowship with God. And that's the fulfilling thing we're looking for, right? To, to, to be with God, to know God, to be known by God, and to share that with each other. And so he says, hey, this is... This is Paul's saying, look, I'm about to do some pretty difficult stuff, but this is the way I'm going to do it, and this is how, and this is the heart I'm going to do it with. And I think for us, we probably want to walk in that.
with each other, with love and care and truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you <coughs> for your word, the truth of it. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your care for us. We pray, Lord, as we <coughs> go to uh, partake of a lunch together, uh, you just, we thank you for food. Thank you for the opportunity to eat again. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless our fellowship, that your presence would be in this place, and pray for your strengthening in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.